0: Radio Gag,
1: the Gays Against Guns show. Good evening everybody and welcome to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. My name is Paul Rowley and I am your host for this evening's show. And from everybody here on the Radio Gag team, we just want to wish all of our listeners a very happy new year. And here is to 2021, the year the tide turned. One thing I know we're all certainly looking forward to is an administration in the White House that wasn't bought and sold by the NRA. So hopefully we're going to see some sensible gun law reform this year. I am super excited to have on the show our special guest this evening, Sebony Selassie. Sebony just recently published her first book, You Belong, with one Harper. And we're going to be talking about belonging, how we're all connected, how we're not separate, how this connects to activism, activist exhaustion, and how it connects to gun violence. So stay tuned for that. First of all,
0: we have Sarah germain Lilly with this week's Gun Violence Prevention News. Radio Gag News for January 5th, 2021 from The Trace. Best stories of 2020. Gun companies received tens of millions of dollars in loans granted by the Federal Paycheck Protection Program new data shows, even as firearm sales hit record levels amid the coronavirus pandemic. The data, released on July 6th, by the Small Business Administration lists all recipients of federal loans greater than $150,000. The trace identified more than 50 manufacturers of guns and gun accessories that received such loans, which altogether totaled between $33 million and $75 million. The companies reported that they were able to retain more than 3,000 jobs, which would have otherwise been lost. The Trump administration initiated the Paycheck Protection Program to create an incentive for employers to avoid layoffs during the pandemic. Businesses must meet the Small Business Administration's size standards to receive a loan. For Small Arms, ordnance, and ordnance Accessories Manufacturing, the category in which the majority of gun makers fall, businesses with up to 1,000 employees are eligible. And from the New York Times, Sunday, January 3rd, fugitive kills pastor in Texas church shooting, police say. The pastor of a Methodist church was killed with his own gun by a man sought by the police who had taken shelter in the building, officials said. Three others, including the gunman, were hurt. A fugitive had been fleeing the police in a Volkswagen Jetta on Saturday evening, brandishing a shotgun during the chase, Sheriff Larry Smith of Smith County said at a news conference on Sunday. Unaware that he was hiding in their house of worship, the pastor, Mark McWilliams, 62, his wife, and two others entered the church at around 9.30 a.m. local time on Sunday. The fugitive was soon discovered hiding in the restroom holding a red bank bag that belonged to the church, Sheriff Smith said. The pastor drew his handgun and ordered the fugitive to get on the floor, the sheriff said, but while the pastor was distracted talking to his wife, the fugitive overpowered him, grabbed the gun and shot and killed the pastor one other person a man who was shot had surgery at the university of texas health east texas hospital on sunday afternoon officials said his condition was not immediately available the pastor's wife was not shot but suffered injuries from a fall while she was fleeing from the shooting the pastor's wife and the other person who were shot were not immediately identified the shooting comes just one year after two people were killed in a shooting at a church in Texas, and three years after a mass shooting at a church in rural Texas killed 26 people. From the Associated Press As COVID 19 surges in the U.S., gun violence and killings also see a spike in large and small cities. In Detroit, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and even smaller Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Milwaukee, 2020 has been deadly, not only because of the pandemic, but also because gun violence is spiking. Authorities and some experts say there is no one clear-cut reason for the spike. They instead point to social and economic upheaval caused by the COVID-19 virus, public sentiment towards the police following Floyd's death in Minneapolis police custody, And a historic shortage of jobs and resources in poorer communities. It's happening in cities large and small, Democratic and Republican-led. Two years ago, Detroit had 261 homicides, the fewest in decades. But at the end of 2020, homicides already had topped 300, while non-fatal shootings were up more than 50% at more than 1,124 through the middle of December. I think the pandemic, COVID, has had a significant emotional impact on people across the country. Detroit Police Chief James Craig said, individuals are not processing how they manage disputes. Whether domestic disputes, arguments, disputes over drugs, there's this quickness to use an illegally carried firearm. About 7,000 guns had been seized through mid-December in Detroit with more than 5,500 arrests for illegal guns. There were 2,797 similar arrests last year. I've not seen a spike like this, but when it's happening in other cities, some smaller, what do we all have in common, Craig said, of the slayings and shootings? That's when you start thinking about COVID. For Radio Gag News, I'm Sarah Germaine Lilly. Thanks so much, Sarah, for this evening's news.
1: And now for this week's In Memoriam, where we honour a life lost to gun violence. In Memoriam Elise Williams and Ava Williams Columbus, Ohio Officers responding to a domestic dispute heard multiple gunshots as they arrived and they found 60-year-old Elise and her nine-year-old sister, Ava, suffering from gunshot wounds inside. The two sisters later died in hospital. The suspect, their own father, had a previous domestic violence charge, was found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound and pronounced dead by suicide. Eric Osborne, a family friend who used to take turns swapping meals with the girl's mother, said, The girls, they were just so bright, so full of energy. Every time I'd knocked on the door to drop a meal off or pick one up, they would come running. The first thing they tell you is that they love you. I just cannot believe they're gone. The girl's mother, Venetia Shamir, said her daughters had a special relationship They were each other's favourite person in the whole world. She said the girls slept in each other's arms every night, loved fashion, drawing and watching movies, adding that they always had a positive outlook on the world. You're listening to Radio Gag here on listener-sponsored WBAI. And now for this evening's special guest... Author, Sebeni Selassie, who's just published her book, You Belong, A Call for Connection. So welcome to the show, Sebeni.
2: Thank you for having me, Paul.
1: Of course. So I don't need to introduce you. You can introduce yourself. I and mean, you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to writing this book.
2: Sure. So I am a meditation teacher. I teach both in a Buddhist lineage in the insight tradition, and I also teach secular mindfulness. And I've been uh, studying Buddhism for about 30 years and teaching now for about 10. And I started writing this book because, well, really my whole life I've been searching for belonging. I was born in Ethiopia and raised in Washington, D.C., and as an immigrant, I always felt out of place, and that I didn't fit in, and that I didn't belong. And so I thought I was going to write a book actually about cancer, because I'm also a cancer survivor, as you know. Uh, and then I realized, oh, God, that would be so depressing, and realized that cancer, meditation, these identities that I was dealing with all had to do with belonging. And so yeah. wrote a book about belonging instead.
1: Yes, and as you say in the, on the front of the book, Sebney Selassie, nerdy, black, immigrant, tomboy, Buddhist, weirdo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the book, you know, some of our listeners are saying, okay, well, what's all this got to do with gays against guns and queer activism and gun violence? And I'll tell you folks who are listening that this book is actually a theory of everything. It touches on how we are in the world, how we find ourselves in the world, how we find ourselves trying to make the world better on how do we try to understand how we might be able to use our lives to improve the lot of others. It's so deep, but yet so fantastically approachable because he tells so many wonderful stories in the book. A lot of what you're talking about is belonging. So do you want to tell our listeners what is belonging? Oh
2: my goodness. Well, you know, belonging is the truth of our existence. So that's something that took me about 30 years, well, 50, I'm going to be 50 soon, um, to understand that it's not something to get to or to achieve or to make happen. But it—it it is the fact of our being that we belong. And We live in society and in systems that deny us our belonging, and those have implications according to race and gender and sexuality and um, immigration status and all of these uh, systemic issues that we are impacted by that make us feel like we don't belong and make Certain people feel even more like they don't belong. So that we have these overlapping ways in which the culture around us denies us our belonging, which is truth.
1: And our joy and our ability to feel like at place with ourselves, you know, at peace with ourselves.
2: Yeah, I use belonging kind of as a synonym for joy, freedom and love which are always possible in any moment. Every ancient wisdom tradition teaches us that, you know, just even in one breath, and we can find that. And that's why people who are incarcerated or people who are in their last breath can have as much freedom and belonging just as someone who, you know, feels um, completely materially free in our society. So we're taught to believe that, you know, only people who have, Um, certain status or certain things in our world belong but actually belonging is the truth no matter what we have or how we're being treated and and this is the paradox that um we can all kind of work towards the most sense of belonging and freedom for everyone
1: yeah which is the goal But of course, (laughs) as we know, you know, you've listed several systems of oppression there that that people have to deal with on a day-to-day level. You know, some of us are impacted by these way more than others because some people are dealing with many simultaneous oppressions. You, You describe in your book these kind of concentric circles of marginalization, which I thought was, you know, just a really really interesting way of of looking at the world and the way that it's structured. Do you want to describe that for us a little bit? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, you know, I um, I took this from a sociological theory called standpoint theory, uh, because often the dominant culture tells us that people who are the least marginalized have the most perspective, the most objectivity, so that if we're kind of coming from a place of working with marginalized identities, that we're being very subjective, we don't have a lot of objectivity, that it's 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 when we lose those identities that we have objectivity. But of course that's coming from a dominant standpoint that mm-hmm. that's a you know usually white, male, wealthy, educated perspective. So I use this image of concentric circles to kind of show how when you're on the margins and we talk about marginalized people, um, and going from margin to center when you're on the margins you actually have even think of it visually the most perspective you're sort of on the outside looking in and you're often moving inwards so if you look even at new york city you know if manhattan is the center and the outer boroughs are the margins people literally have to go into manhattan to work to Get, get access to certain resources, and Manhattan is the richest and kind of most resourced part of the city. So people on the margins actually gain a lot of perspective, moving in and out, seeing all these territories, understanding all these different realities, whereas people in the center hardly ever go to the margins. They're only seeing and witnessing what's in the center, and if they have access to the margins, it's because people have come in to their world, either usually in a service or obligatory kind of relationship.
1: Yeah, exactly. I feel like, you know, when you're every time somebody tells you that you don't belong, you know, it's a reminder of um, how much more you know about that than they do. <laughs> in a sense, right? You know, it's like, who, who are you going to look to for life skills? You know, somebody who's been had a silver spoon in their mouth the whole time and pays Seven hundred and fifty dollars a year in federal taxes, or you know, somebody who has worked every day of their life, you know, and has been in many of these experienced many of these kind of oppressive systems that you mentioned earlier, you know, as a as an immigrant, as a person of color, as a woman, as a trans person, you know.
2: And if they've gotten to the quote-unquote center somehow, then worked their way up or through these different systems, that have a, often a deep understanding of what's going on in each of these places because they've had to really navigate all these different systems to get where they're at
1: yeah i think it's so interesting in um, the time we're in right now that that this this center that is something that a lot of people in the u.s i mean we, we can speak openly here we're both immigrants you know? <laughs> so we have you know this view from the margins let's say mm-hmm. of america mm-hmm. I and mean, i think a lot of the time There's a a lot of, no disrespect, but you know there is definitely an entitlement that a lot of people in America really hold on to. Even the fact that people say the greatest country in the world, I mean, what does that even mean?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I think we're seeing this more and more now. People who are not in this centre that you're talking about really feel that they are. I think about working class white people in predominantly Republican-run states who look at somebody like Donald Trump and feel that they are somehow like him. And I think that's something he really plays up on as well. You know, And I think that's really interesting in terms of like the way that the power works in this country, that people who are in these positions of power, and by which I mean predominantly, you know, white Republican governors, senators and so on, they have no they're in no way shy about playing these cards you know allowing people to believe this stuff you know
2: yeah and i you know i think that i use this phrase in the book from pastor michael mcbride who's a a activist pastor from from oakland and he he talks about reaching for whiteness yes and when he said that i heard it on a, a podcast um it's like my heart sank because I recognize so much of myself in that phrase. And in, so, in one way, like, he was talking about people of color and particularly black people who are taught to reach for whiteness, you know, to look for a certain kind of success or a certain kind of education, certain kind of um, uh, even lifestyle that is really about uh, assimilation. Yeah. And um, we could use whiteness as kind of a category of not just color, but really this idea of what life is supposed to look like and we're all taught that we're all taught to reach for the center really it's reaching for for um, this centrist idea of what we're supposed to be like and that's really what's being projected it's acting it's asking us to um, deny our specificity like what we know and where we're coming from yeah
1: like femme gay men trying to butch up when they're walking past a few dudes on the street, you know, because you're afraid of... I mean, it comes from fear, I guess, right? You're afraid of getting beaten up or you're getting called out or whatever, or the pressure on trans women to pass, realness, Right, yes. Not every trans person wants realness, but that's what... That's the little amount that our society has allowed trans folk to exist under. Okay, you can be trans if we don't notice you, if you blend. You know? So
2: who's allowed into that center? Exactly. Like who's allowed to pass in from the margins has to fit into these very tight ideas of whether it's straightening your hair or butching it up or, yeah. um, like you're saying, sort of fitting into one idea of a gender binary. Yeah. Then, um, yeah, you're not going to be allowed in or you're going to be marginalized into a particular compartment
1: yeah which is the opposite of belonging
2: (laughs) it really is Mm -hmm. and you know the we talked a little bit about before the central kind of paradox of this book because it is a book that's looking into a spiritual mystical whatever you want to call it ancient um understanding that there is a paradox like we are not separate you can look at that scientifically in terms of the molecular construction of our reality that we're just vibrating energy we all came from the tiniest point and um, everything is absolutely interconnected and ancient wisdom traditions indigenous philosophies have talked about this also for millennia that there's um, there is this deep interconnection between us, and so that is the true belonging that we're pointing to, and that is not a denial of the fact that we have this specificity and all of this diversity and beauty, and we have to be able to hold both of those. Yeah, they're not in conflict with each other. They're not um, in denial of each other. That it, they're actually. Um, a really beautiful paradox if we can approach it with a sense of, you know, beauty and wonder that, wow, both these things can be true.
1: Yeah. There's that line that you repeat several times during the book.
2: Although we are not one, we are not separate. And although we are not
1: separate, we're not the same. You are listening to Radio Gag right here on listener-sponsored WBAI. We're here every Tuesday at 6.30pm and available after the show on all major podcast platforms. To find out how you can support this show by becoming a WBAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag, go to give2wbai.org. WBAI and the number 2 dot org. And right there you can sign up for a modest monthly donation that helps keep this radio show on air. And this evening we're talking with Sebani Selassie who has just published her first book You Belong, A Call for Connection. To find out more about Sebani and to get yourself a copy of this wonderful book you can just go to her website sebenieselassie.com S-E-B-E-N-E S-E-L-A-S-S-I-E That's 70 What I've been thinking about a lot as well while, while reading the book we are in a country that is so heavily heavily armed you know and people are and basically there's like a mass shooting if not two every day in this country at this point point. and I feel like so much of that is connected to what you're talking about in the book even though you don't really explicitly talk about guns in the book you certainly talk about violence and racism and Misogyny And gun violence actually connects all those things, mm-hmm. all these different types of oppression. The centre that you're talking about, it's right there too. If you're thinking about belonging, for me, one possible interpretation of the opposite of belonging is ownership, which capitalism, you know, really drums into us so much. Everything has to be owned. And even, you know, if you're that tokenized marginal person that makes it into the centre, now you're a commodity.
2: Women were owned people of color, black people were owned yeah. I and mean, ownership goes really deep when we're talking about this country and the colonial project.
1: Yeah, because you talk a lot about colonialism in the book as well. Yeah. And I I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in the way that people buy into that and how now gun ownership is so tied to that idea. Mm-hmm. You know, so people have this sense of belonging to guns or, instead of guns belonging to them. You know, I often say to people it's like I can't think of anywhere else in the world where people attach their national identity to inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. But I'd be super interested to hear your thoughts about how how guns play into this, you know, gun violence and the ownership of guns and into this idea of belonging and or not belonging. How do you think this all ties into this epidemic of gun violence that we're living through in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, well, I think it, it is so complex and there's probably a lot of parts to it. But what comes up as you're saying that, to me is um, that sort of original sin of this country of separating native people from their land
1: right
2: and that um, that misunderstanding of the indigenous connection to land and to each other is not separate you know and, and you know there's been more understanding of uh, of that lack of um, agreement like, just even conceptual agreement that native peoples of America did not understand the, the ways in which Europeans were going to take the land because they didn't even have that concept of ownership. They were not separate from, from the land or from each other. And so that had to be taken by force eventually. You know, initially yeah. it's just a conceptual misunderstanding, but then it, ha- it really had to be through guns and through violence that that was taken and that to me is like the the very first and this is the colonial project everywhere yeah that that um that theft of land and resources um and the commodification of then people as well Is so linked to that violence because it was only through that violent force you know the colonial project is often talked about as if it was like just some british people taking a boat to get some tea and spices it was like a really brutal violent process so was the only way that that could happen people weren't just going to suddenly give up everything you know there might have been some initial uh, generosity and exchange, but in order for colonialism to be what it became, which is an overtaking of the whole globe, it, it had to be necessarily incredibly brutal and violent.
1: Yeah. So we just didn't all start speaking Spanish in South America. You know, that's even that boggles my mind, you know, when you think about the hundreds and hundreds of languages that would have existed and still to some degree do still exist, you know.
2: And people didn't just submit. No. You know, there there was um a a very violent origin to to all of this, to yeah. the to the way the globe is now and where we are. So we're leaving, living already with just within that legacy
1: yeah.
2: of that violence. And then as you're describing, you know, then that adds on, well, how then do I defend what I've stolen and yeah. how do um, you know, I protect myself from the fear that is perpetuated and generated by the culture, by the media, you know, even right now, the fear that's being generated, so that I have friends, you know, black friends who are talking about whether they should get guns or not. So this idea that there's something that we can control through the use of this violent object um, is just so imprinted into us. this is the way that we can protect ourselves and just even asking people to think through the couple of friends i've had conversations with like what scenario are you imagining that you think a gun would be helpful or useful yeah you know and there isn't really a logical picture in their minds it's just the impulse that's been so ingrained like so many of the impulses we have and that's why this personal work in the book is is so important like yeah that that's what mindfulness helps us untangle is like how we even got to the thought that i need a gun yeah and that this would be a useful thing to to help me in my own freedom
1: yeah when the reality is like if you've got a gun in the house you're four or five times more likely to get shot
2: yeah if you're in the situation that you th- that some fearful imaginary situation that you've created that you need a gun if you're imagining that you're probably going to be dead anyways first of all that you've imagined it is just a sign of how much you've been manipulated by the fear culture around us yeah most of us will not find ourselves in that situation
1: yeah
2: but as you're saying once we've got the gun it's likely going to lead to some tragic
1: yeah, result. Like one of your kids finds the guy. I mean, it's, there's countless stories. So all this marginalization is, by design, exhausting.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Right. Many of the people, I think, who listen to this show, and many of the people are involved in many of the activist groups in New York and in and the country in general, I mean, at this point, you know, we're just feeling defeated, exhausted, angry, you know, worn thin. You talk about self-care and self-knowledge, self-love a lot in the book. And I'd love to hear you talk to our listeners a little bit about how that is so important for those of us who are trying to fight oppression, you know, to try and change the world, to try and make other people's lives better. How does that start with us?
2: Yeah, you know we've talked a lot about sort of these systems and systemic oppression and how that can create these this marginalization and these different um, structures in our society. But systems and structures are made up of people. Exactly. So uh, we're not. We can dismantle all the things and change all the laws, but if we're still operating from the same operating system without any change or updates, we're just going to recreate the same messed up realities that we have. And I use the Spell hooks quote a lot and I use it in the book that she said, you know, if you're effed up and you lead the revolution, you're going to have an effed up revolution. Right. And we've all seen it in our, I come from... Before becoming a full-time teacher, 20 years of activism, social justice work, working in mostly communities of color, a lot with young people, um, in youth development and youth media, and saw a lot of anger and a lot of burnout. And the, the good work and the good intentions being fueled by this reactivity. And that reactivity to the systems will not change the systems because we'll just be recreating the same infights, the same, um, conflicts and the same, um, really patterns of domination and oppression that the systems have always taught us. So I talk about this delusion of separation that we, you know, we think we're separate, Um, because we have difference and we have identity and we have diversity, but we can't see that actually there's such a strong interconnection between um, all of us, whether, you know, we think we're on one side or another. Um, But even if we're just talking about our own communities, that our communities are being fueled by the same systems of domination that are in the outside world. So, you know, there's competition, there's comparison, there's um, uh, really unhealthy uh, personal patterns, familial patterns, trauma um, that's often intergenerational and gets passed down through our ancestry. And if that doesn't get examined, we're just going to repeat those, whether it's in our home and personal relationships or our work relationships those will still be fueling our work and we've all seen it we've seen it in our activist communities we've seen Mm -hmm. it in our work environments so if you're not doing that inner work on yourself and using whatever techniques it doesn't have to be mindfulness it doesn't have to be a particular it doesn't even have to be a spiritual tradition but if you're not um, doing that inner work and self-examination the outer work won't matter
1: and I, I feel then in addition to that, then there's, there's something when you say in the book that there's there's a limit to the politics of anger. Yeah, that's uh, that, right?
2: Gib- Gibran. <laughs> I'm, I'm quoting um, Puerto Rican activist Gibran Rivera, who, right. who said that the, the limits of um, the politics of resentment. Of resentment. Yeah. And yeah. um, that was so
1: interesting because I don't think I've ever lived in a play in a country so divided. And I grew up in Ireland in the <laughs> 1970s. saying a lot. <laughs> you know, when there were tanks in the streets and the IRA and other paramilitary groups were very active. This thing is happening now is that people think that just being angry is being political. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's social work or something, you know. For trolling people on Facebook or on Twitter, you know, just adding fuel to the fire... To me, that speaks directly to what you were just saying, that you were just still staying within those same systems of oppression and domination. In fact, you're helping to support them and to perpetuate them.
2: There's also a lot of arrogance in polarization Yeah. because it's assuming that if you had the exact same circumstances, and I mean exact same, so there's people who come out of conservative communities or come out of certain realities who then have a change, um, usually because of some personal marginalization. But if I grew up exactly like um, a Trump supporter, if I had that same reality, of course I would think like them. Of course I would see things that way. And so this anger is really, to me, masking a lot of pain and hurt and disappointment. Yeah. And it's not that anger is not useful. It's actually very useful Uh, for um, igniting like it's a very energetic quality that rage is often appropriate response because it 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 invites us to act like you know it has us stopping harm when we can act out of it when we stay in that like if that becomes our fuel for things we're not really tending to the hurt and and really the trauma underneath it and we're assuming that we are somehow better than other people. Yeah. And that we're separate from other people, which is the fundamental lie that we are told to buy, in, buy into. Yeah. But, um, but at its you know, basic level, if we're constantly fueled by anger and outrage and polarization and reactivity, we just, like you said and described, we just get exhausted. We don't, we don't have the energy for beauty and joy and freedom and for imagination.
1: So what kind of world are we going to build if we're just mean and bitter and angry <laughs> all the time? And
2: know? what kind of world are we going to build if we're constantly in reaction instead of building?
1: Instead of creating. Instead
2: yeah. of creating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned in the book that I was journaling years ago and I realized that creative and reactive are the same word and the sea just moves. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that C is really the curiosity, the compassion, the um, contemplation, like we need a sense of rest and quiet and um, spaciousness to actually even have the energy to create something new.
1: Yeah. And I think this, you know, the capitalism, of course, tells us that we always need to be doing more and more and more and It's never enough. And I think that applies to activist work just as much as it applies to, you know, being a property magnate or whatever, you know. It's like those same patterns are in us. You know, we need to understand that, like, you know, I know activist guilt and activist burnout are really huge issues in the community, you know. It's like you should not feel guilty because you don't make a meeting or you should not feel guilty because you didn't go to every demonstration, you know. It's like be there and be ready and be present, when you can
2: and also trust that um human energy is not the center of the entire universe in fact it's a very very tiny fraction of it and there are forces and realities that are beyond my there's something very egocentric about that kind of mentality right it's not just my activity that is going to change things i think we saw this so clearly from standing rock which yeah. is a very prayerful ceremonial um, trusting in energy of people that it wasn't only through action activity running ourselves ragged but uh, from friends I wasn't there but from friends I know who were there was a lot of just being together yeah. that being together is actually um, will have a lot of fruition if we trust it Yeah. so being with our communities and taking care of each other could be just as impactful as doing stuff all the time.
1: I think you know it's very complex. I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of ways to engage. Yeah, um, words or thoughts? Would you have? I mean, apart from again encouraging encourage people to read this book, um, but what kind of insights do you think you would give to your angry twenty something year old activist self right now if you were living in this time? Mm feels like sometimes we're putting all this work in and not enough change is happening, but what, what do you say to people who are feeling burnt out, that are feeling exhausted? You know, what can you do?
2: Yeah, I would say to that me, if she were young now, to really trust in the power of intimacy. And by that, I mean really um, getting intimate with my experience so understanding like what is my true motivation what's my true intention even taking the time to listen into that because we're so fueled by the data and information and algorithms that are coming at us all the time telling us how we should think and how we should feel and how we should act that we actually get out of touch with our own knowing and that takes like a pause it takes time and space to actually listen in and even ask myself like what do i really want to do what what do i what do i feel like what am i motivated to to get involved in um because because part of the burnout is feeling like we have to do everything all the time and um feeling like we're not doing enough and getting out of touch with uh really what's going on inside and sometimes what's needed when we listen in is rest or attending to some hurt or pain or trauma Um, so really making space for that so like intimacy and then imagination yeah like really taking um some space to creatively understand like where i'm gonna put my energy yeah like that is um we can't build a new world if we can't imagine it yeah like how often we're going off of the structures and the ideas of the past rather than really building something um, truly new and
1: creative. Wonderful. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. On the oh, show. It's been thank so great you. to chat. We could chat for days. I mean, we, we have. have, we have been chatting for years <laughs> at this point, but I'm so blown away by your book. I mean, I always knew it was going to be brilliant, but it is such a triumph and I'm so Honoured that you've joined us on the show today and looking forward to chatting lots more
2: Oh thank you so much Paul I've been so inspired by Gays Against Guns and all that you've been doing and I can't wait for your film
1: Yay <laughs> To find out more about Zebani and to get yourself a copy of this wonderful book you can just go to her website sebonyselassie.com S-E-B-E-N-E S-E-L-A-S-S-I-E at 70selassie.com Well, folks, that is all we have time for this week. And as always, thank you so much for listening in. We are going to sing you out with our political singing quartet. Sing out, Louise! Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next Tuesday at six thirty p.m. Take care. Oh yeah, we'll tell you something catch you on the run. If you are an abuser, we want to take your gun. We want to take your gun. We want to take your
2: gun. Oh, please say to me
1: you had your background check. Cause when You on the run if you are prone to violence, we
0: gonna take your
1: gun.